Well, good evening, men. It's great to see you this evening. It's uh, been a, a while since we've been together, so to come back after a, a full summer and to look forward to a whole year together again is, is exciting for me, especially as we consider the series before us. So I want to welcome you personally. It's uh, great to see you all here. It's great to have the opportunity again to to uh, spend some time in fellowship with you, and that's a really important part of our meetings on Wednesday nights. And so I, I just want to cover a little bit of our agenda as we go forward from here. Neil mentioned it already, and I want to review that just so you can get a picture, especially for the, the guys who are visiting for the first time, what we will do here on our Wednesday evenings. Uh, tonight's going to be a little bit different. We're going to have our teaching time and then our small groups. It's, it's going to be like it was last year. Uh, but moving forward, as Neil said, we are going to shift that around so that when you come in here on, on a Wednesday night, we're going to gather together, and, and uh, the first thing that we'll do after some announcements is to join together in common confession through song and sing some songs together to get our hearts uh, bound together and to focus our thoughts on Christ and what He has done for us on the cross and through his resurrection and through his ongoing intercession for us. And then after that, we'll move to small groups. And there's a reason for that. Uh, moving forward, what we're going to do is uh, every, uh, every uh, teaching time, I'm going to give you some, some take-home questions that I hope that you'll go home and, and study and answer those questions. Basically, it's some homework. I won't call it that because that will maybe uh, cause some of you to shrink back from doing it. But they're really study questions for further reflection, uh, for further study, for further application that you'll work on throughout the week based on the material that I teach. And then when you come together, we want that to be really the, the main or the first focus of, of the time. And so after our singing, you'll go into the groups and discuss the homework, the, the study questions that you've, you've, you've taken home and, and you've done some study on throughout the week. Now, I want to make it clear, on the one hand, this isn't something where we're going to be, you know, taking attendance and, and uh, checking your homework. We're not going to do that. So if for some reason you didn't get those study questions answered, doesn't mean you can't come. Uh, the study questions, however, are designed with an intent, and that would be that you would take it beyond just what I give you on a, on a Wednesday night, and you would take the Word and study it for yourself. And that's a, a key element of what we want to cultivate in this group, that you men would be active in your own study of the Word of God, and the questions that I'm going to give to you at the end of every lesson are going to help you uh, with that. And it's going to highlight some of the features that I emphasized, I'm going to take it to some more practical levels, and uh, it's going to really be helpful. So that when you do come together, you can be more uh, equipped, more ready to give some helpful answers when you're in that small group context. Now, with that said, uh, I want to make note of the, uh, the handout. Now, all of you, uh, almost all of you should have received one of these. I printed out 150 copies. I realize that's not enough for tonight. Uh, in the future, I'll make sure that we have enough. But every night, I'll be, or every Wednesday night when we, when we gather together, I'll give you a four-page handout, and, and this handout will uh, contain the, the sum of the material that I'm going to go through. You'll be able to follow it roughly, but I don't want you to tie it to your notes. Usually, the projector will work, and uh, usually you'll be able to follow along. I want you to, to think about the things that I'm, I'm teaching here, and you can take this thing home then, this handout, and uh, you can uh, keep them. That's why I've, I've uh, hole-punched them, stapled them keep them in a, in a place. And this year, as uh, we've mentioned many times already leading up to our meeting tonight, uh, this year the focus is going to be on the men around Paul, uh, the men who shaped the Apostle Paul, uh, the men who influenced the Apostle Paul, the men who served the Apostle Paul, and even we'll look at some, some men who challenged the Apostle Paul. And that will be with the, the purpose of, of learning from those men that surrounded the Apostle Paul, learning mostly from the positive examples as well as learning from the negative examples, the villains, you could say, learning uh, practical lessons for our own lives. You see, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he, he called on the Philippian believers to imitate his example 
But then he said, and walk according to the pattern you find in us, plural. So on the one hand, he did say, you know, look at my example as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as I imitate Christ, Christ, follow me. But he also said, don't just follow me, but, but, but walk according to the pattern that you have in us, plural, in the, the, the fellow co-workers and colleagues that Paul had around him. And what we're going to find is that the Apostle Paul had an incredible number of men who surrounded him and, and who enabled him to accomplish so much from a, from a human perspective. Obviously, we know that uh, the Lord was the one who was working his will. But he used Paul and he used the team that was around Paul. And, and the key question that I hope you'll keep coming back to throughout this series that's going to take us to, to next May uh, is that as we look at the different men whom the Lord used to impact the Apostle Paul, that you'll be thinking, if, if I was living in Paul's day, would I be one of those men? Would I be a man like Luke, that, whom Paul called beloved? Would I be one of those men like Timothy, who, about whom Paul says, I have no one like him? Or would I be like a John Mark, who at the end of Paul's ministry uh, was said of, by Paul that he is useful to me. So the question is, you know, how do I measure up to these men who surrounded Paul? How do I measure up to the men that, 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 that Paul said of, you know, follow the example you have in them? That's going to be our focus throughout the year. And uh, hopefully all of you have one of those little calendars that's going to, uh, that's going to walk you through the year of the different men's lives that we will, uh, that we will study Men, beginning with Stephen, after we talk about Paul for these next two weeks, Stephen and Luke, Timothy and Silas, Barnabas, Peter also had an impact on Paul's life, uh, even men uh, like Epaphroditus and Epaphras. And you probably said, well, I, I, I don't know anything about those men. And is there anything in the scriptures about those men? And the answer is yes, there is. Sometimes in very small statements, but they're very profound and so we'll take the time in this series to, uh, to look at those men, and I hope that this will uh, instill in you a, a, a desire uh, to, to look at the lives of the men described in Scripture and learn all you can from them and imitate uh, their example. Well, to begin with tonight, we have to start with the man who's really at the center of our study the Apostle Paul. We have to, 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 first of all, see what made Paul tick. If, if we're going to look at the men around Paul, the men that God in his sovereign wisdom decided that their lives needed to be described in the, the Scriptures, even through the pen of the Apostle Paul, we, we have to start with the man Paul himself. And so this evening, we will look at Paul's early years and his conversion. Next week, we'll look at his, his ministry and his life following Christ. So the study this evening is going to be on Paul's early years, what made him uh, who he was. And as we do that, I, I want to stop for just a moment and, and consider the significance of the Apostle Paul in history. Not even just in church history, but in history as a whole. One writer said this about the Apostle Paul, and, and this reminds us of the importance of taking some time to, to study this life and to imitate his example. One, one theologian said this, It is not overstating the case to assert that the Apostle Paul is the most influential Christian who has ever lived. The most influential follower of Jesus Christ is the Apostle Paul based on what the Lord did through him. Another theologian, J. Gresham Machen, said this, the Christian movement began in the midst of a very peculiar people, referring to the, the Jewish people, which comprised just a very tiny minority of the 
of the people of the Roman Empire and the people of the world of that day. The Christian movement began in the midst of a very peculiar people. In AD 35, which is just a few years after Paul's conversion, so Paul really wasn't on the scene yet, but in AD 35, it would have appeared to a superficial observer that this movement was simply an obscure Jewish sect. It's kind of an anomaly, a blip on the radar. In AD 35, a little tiny blip, maybe a few thousand people, as, as Luke records in those early years, there were several thousand followers of Jesus Christ. But 30 years later, by the time of Paul's martyrdom, Christianity was already a world religion. 30 years. And certainly there were many different instruments whom God used to communicate the gospel and spread it across the Roman Empire and even beyond by this time. But as we look at church history and look at the the details that we have in Scripture, we find that the Apostle Paul was really the center, was really the key engine behind this movement, especially in taking the gospel to the Gentile world. Another writer said this, Paul knew how to think, and he had such passion of soul and keenness of intellect that he still challenges the respect of the greatest minds of the modern world. And you can even consider the, and see the significance of the Apostle Paul in comparing him to the man that would eventually take his life, Nero. Today, you'll never find a father who will call his son Nero. But you will find many, many examples of fathers who call their sons Paul. We name dogs Nero. And Nero was the most influential from a political, geopolitical level He was the most influential man imaginable. But who has had the greatest impact on history when you compare him to the Apostle Paul? Well, to think of Paul and his life, we have to start with his birth. We have to consider who he was when he was, where he was, and and, and what context he was born into. And so let's start for just a moment thinking of Paul's birthplace. Paul's birthplace. Where was Paul born? And and this is important to consider. And we read from several texts in in the New Testament that Paul was born in the city of Tarsus. For example, in Acts chapter 21, verse 39, Paul says this as he is is, uh, giving his testimony before the Jewish people. He says, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a a citizen of of no insignificant city, Acts chapter 21, verse 39. So so he identifies himself as as being born in this this city called Tarsus. And unfortunately, I can't show the map, uh, but if you turn to the 67th book of your Bibles, the book of maps, you can find this pretty quick where, where the city of Tarsus is. If you know the Mediterranean Sea, Tarsus is at the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, Tarsus was just a few miles inland. It was, it was not a purely coastal city, but it was a few miles inland, and you'd actually have to take a little river to get up to Tarsus. But it's right there nestled in the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it would be found in, in southeastern Turkey today, in, in modern-day Turkey. Tarsus, this is important, and it's not coincidental that Paul mentions that he was born in Tarsus. Tarsus was no insignificant city, as Paul himself says. For one thing, it was a free city. It was one of a a number of cities that had been granted significant autonomy by Rome, and so it it, it, uh, didn't have to pay the the heavy taxes. Uh, The the local leadership, the civic leadership, was able to control the, the issues of the city, without Roman interference. So it was a free city. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a city that really was on the, 
the, the, the border between what we call the Occident and the Orient. Uh, uh, the Orient. It was a city nestled between the Western world, the Greek world, and the Eastern world. Tarsus was right there, and anyone traveling from Persia to Rome would have to go through Tarsus, unless they would somehow take a boat from somewhere in Syria and just go across the Mediterranean. But if you're traveling by foot, and you're going from east to west or west to east, eastern world to the western world, western world to the eastern world, you'd have to go through Tarsus. And that, that made it a very cosmopolitan city, a city uh, that would have all kinds of cultures coming together in a, in a melting pot of, of different races and, and tribes and languages. It was also a university city. It was a city of education. Now, most people think of Athens as being a great educational center for the, the Greco-Roman world, and it was. But Tarsus was not much unlike Athens. Sure, it didn't have the, the great schools of the philosophers, but, but Tarsus was a city of learning. It was renowned as a special place for learning. And furthermore, Tarsus was a very prosperous city. It was known especially for agricultural products, goat skins, and there's a kind of fiber that they made from flax straw that was known especially to grow in that region. And if we had the projector, I'd show you some pictures of what the area around there looked like. It was a, the, the, the surrounding region around Tarsus was this fertile plain nestled up as, against the mountains. And it was a very, very productive area, making Tarsus a very, very po- uh, prosperous city. Well, Paul was born into this environment, and he even says that he was a citizen of Tarsus. Now, I want to make this clear right from the start that citizenship in Tarsus was different than Roman citizenship. That Paul had citizenship in Tarsus meant that his name was on the official civic rolls of the city of Tarsus. Now, that's unusual because as we're going to learn, Paul was a very devout Jew. And Jews being as devout as Paul would not have particularly pursued trying to get their names on the civic rolls. Unless you were a real uh, syncretizer and you really adapted elements of the Greek culture into your Jewish life, as as many Jews did, that would be an attainment. But Paul wasn't like that. We're going to see in a few moments that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a, a pure Jew. But his name was on the rolls. And that indicated that his family had a level of uh, a level of prestige in the city. That wasn't a common thing to be on the rolls, to be a citizen of, of the city of Tarsus. And, and how they got there, we don't know. It's a mystery. But we can already start to get this idea that Paul is a man of, of privilege. He has attainments that would be enviable in the eyes of many in, in the world at that time. But even more important than his Tarsian citizenship was his Roman citizenship. Paul says to, if you remember in, in uh, Acts chapter 22, he says to his, to the, to the commander of the, the military, uh, in Acts 22 verse 28, the commander asked Paul, when Paul said that he was a citizen, of Rome, the commander answered, he says, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Now, that was especially unusual. Roman citizenship granted the right to vote. Roman citizenship provided exemption from military service. Roman citizenship provided the right to own land, to establish businesses, to buy and sell and make contracts. Roman citizenship provided protection from cruel and unusual forms of punishment, such as execution and floggings. And Roman citizenship, as we know, granted the right to appeal to Caesar. So if you were ever incarcerated, ever arrested for anything as a Roman citizen, you had a, essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card, or at least a card that would, that would immediately cause everything to change in, in your set of circumstances. You could pull that card out and say, I appeal to Caesar. And immediately it would cause everything to stop. And that man would then, as that Roman citizen, would then be put on a track 
to go and have his case heard before the highest court of the land, which was Caesar. That was Paul. Now, how did how was this citizenship received? How did Paul receive this citizenship? Well, for some, like we see with this commander in Acts chapter 22, he bought it with a large sum of money, which probably means he, he bribed some official. And, and so he, you know, sometimes this would take years of salary that you wanted to achieve your freedom and these rights and privileges. And so you'd save for years and years and years and then bribe an official to get your name on the Roman roll. Sometimes citizenship was conveyed because you did some kind of special service to the empire. And in the case of special military endeavors, you would get this. I was in Jerusalem this past, uh, this past summer, and I was at a museum there, and there's this one certificate, this letter, uh, this diploma, actually, that was written to a soldier. He had served 25 years in the military, and that letter, it's, it's a plaque, uh, or it's, it's an inscription in bronze, grants that soldier citizenship for 25 years of dedicated service to the empire. So you'd do things like that, and you'd get citizenship sometimes. Sometimes you could get uh, citizenship if you were owned as a slave by a Roman citizen and that Roman citizen really loved what you did for him and really loved your service, uh, it was called manumission. And sometimes those Roman slave owners to their special slaves would take them to Rome and then have a formal ceremony where they would officially release them. And then those former slaves would take the, the name of their, essentially the last name in, in today's lingo, the last name of their slave owner, and it would become theirs, but they would become a freeman and they would become a citizen. That happened from time to time. But with Paul, we find that Paul said, I was born a citizen. That was rare. And, and again, we don't know the circumstances by which Paul's family, Paul's father, came to have citizenship. We just don't know. Most likely, scholars speculate that Paul's parents, or grandparents especially, probably had been slaves, had been, uh, had been captured out of the land of, of, of Judea, taken to Tarsus to serve a slave owner, but their commitment to excellence uh, the, the, his grandfather's commitment to excellence, for example, led that slave owner to release him into freedom, and that's how this family got freedom. But we just don't know. But what we can say is this. Paul was a man who enjoyed privilege that few in the empire had. That's his background. And, and by the way, the word Paul, the name Paul, sometimes people confuse that and think that that's Paul's post-conversion name. It wasn't. As a, a, a Roman citizen, at birth, if you're born a Roman citizen, you had to take upon yourself three names. It was, it was the law. And so Paul was one of his three Roman names. We don't know the other two. He only goes according to his cognomen, his, his given name. It's, it's Paul. That's, that's his name. But you read of other... Um, you read of other um, Roman citizens, such as Sergius Paulus in Acts 13, those are two of the Roman names that that, that, that particular individual had. But with Paul, we only know that he had this, this Roman name, Paulus. That was his name given to him at birth. Now, much more important, obviously, than his Greek upbringing is his Jewish upbringing, his Jewish upbringing. And this was a matter which for the Apostle Paul, before he was an apostle, for, for the man Paul, before his conversion, this was, this was Paul's greatest prize. Philippians 3 verse 5, for example, says this. And, and I want you to notice, as, as, as Paul says this in Philippians 3, he moves from the most general to, to the most specific, from that which is a special privilege in general to that which is most unique. In Philippians 3 verse 5, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day 
That marked him as a descendant of Abraham. If you go to Genesis 17, for example, you read that, that all the descendants of Abraham, regardless of whatever line that they, that they were part of, if, if you were a descendant of Abraham and there were multiple lines, you were circumcised. So Paul begins by referring to his Abrahamic, uh, his Abrahamic uh, lineage. But then he says, of the nation of Israel, which means now he's getting more specific. He's not just a descendant of Abraham, but he's actually a descendant of Jacob. And then he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, when he says that, that's very important because that tells us that Paul's family was so devout in their commitment to their Jewishness that they had never lost track of their heritage. Many Jews did. By that time, many Jews didn't really know what lineage they were from. But here we find that Paul's parents, Paul's father, had never lost track of the fact that he was traced all the way back to that tribe, Benjamin. In fact, Paul's Hebrew name is Saul. And Paul's Hebrew name it identifies that probably when his parents named him, that would be the name that Paul's parents would give to him. They were thinking of the most well-known individual of the Benjamite tribe, and that was Saul, Israel's first king. But then there's something even more important than that. If you look at Hebrews chapter or, or Philippians chapter three, verse five, you find the pinnacle of Paul's religious attainment. His, the pinnacle of his religious possession. And he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, it's important to note this, that you could essentially take the Jewish people and divide them into two different categories. They were the Hellenistic Jews. They were the not-so-pure Jews. They were the Jews of the diaspora. They had been taken out of the land and as a result, they began, as they lived among other peoples, they began to adopt different aspects of the culture. And there were Jews, many in that day, who had adopted the practices of the Greeks. And that's why they were called Hellenistic Jews. And they were in the majority because many Jews had been spread and, and many Jews were influenced by that Greco-Roman culture. There's a very famous Hellenistic Jew by the name of Philo. You may have heard of that name. He lived in Alexandria, and he took great, great joy and delight in the fact that he was merging Jewish culture and Greek culture together. But it essentially led to a kind of an impure, an impure Jew. In fact, you find the problem with that in Acts chapter 6, right? In Acts chapter 6, you have the problem between these, these widows in the church. And what was the problem? The Hellenistic Jewish widows were not getting the same care as the Hebrew Jewish widows. The Hebrews, as Paul calls himself here, a Hebrew of Hebrews, they were the pure ones. Aramaic would have been their mother tongue. And they would have followed the law to its letter every aspect of the law. So we can tell when Paul says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, we know that he was raised in a very, very strict Hebrew home. And what makes this exceptional is the fact that he didn't grow up in Jerusalem. His parents unusually were able to keep his home purely Hebrew, even though he grew up in a Gentile city like Tarsus. So we can tell as we keep going through this this, this summary of Paul's early life, that this is a unique man. He, he, is, a, he is a man of, uh, that, that, that sets himself apart from even other Jews by virtue of all the religious possessions that he had, his status. And more than that, we see his education is particularly unique. In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. He's in Jerusalem at the time. Brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers being zealous for God. Paul's referring to the fact there that probably around the age of 13, he would have been sent by his parents in Tarsus to Jerusalem. 
essentially to a boarding school, the equivalent of a, of a Jewish boarding school. He, would, he was sent to Jerusalem, but he wasn't sent to Jerusalem to, to learn under any rabbi. He sat at the feet of what was perhaps the most popular rabbi of the time, Gamaliel. And, 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 and literally, this, this text in Acts 22, verse 3, when Paul says he was educated under Gamaliel, the text literally says he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So the idea is, is that Paul was, was, was seated right there in the front row, right by Gamaliel's feet, as Gamaliel would sit as a Jewish rabbi and teach, and these Jewish boys would sit around him and just take in everything that, that they'd hear. That's the apostle Paul before his conversion. This is what he possessed. And Gamaliel was so important that one ancient rabbinical writing said this, when Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of Torah ceased and purity and separateness died. There was such a high regard for this rabbi Gamaliel. And this was Paul who studied at his feet. What was the result of this education? Paul says elsewhere in Acts 26 verse 5, he said, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So the product of this education was that Paul himself became a Pharisee. And by his own, his own admission, he was known as one of the most strictest among his countrymen. This term Pharisee is derived from the Hebrew word meaning separate. To be a Pharisee meant that you were separate. And it meant that you would separate yourself from anything that threatened your moral or ceremonial purity. And, and that wasn't just according to what the law said. It was according to all the oral traditions. So the Pharisees would never rub shoulders with Gentiles. Never. They would never be caught sitting at a table alongside a Gentile. It just was never any part of their lives. They would go to the most extreme efforts to protect their ceremonial and moral purity. And that was Saul. That was Paul. He says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. You talk about a traditionalist, a zealous fundamentalist, committed to the most strict understandings of oral tradition and the most strict practice of it, it was the Apostle Paul. This is who he was before his conversion. And we can take all of that and we can summarize that and, and, and really say four things about Paul. And this is why it's important to, to start with Paul to, to, to understand the, the place from where he came. Paul, first of all, was a man of high social privilege. He was a Roman citizen. In, in respect to rights and privileges, you couldn't get really higher than that. I mean, there were certain statuses and so on, even, without, even within Roman citizenship, but Paul had it. Number two, he, he had the strictest, the best religious training of the day, learning at the feet of Gamaliel. Number three, he, he was known for his powerful intellect and his incessant zeal. He, he was that, 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 that extremely excessive, compulsive guy who just knows everything, who's able to survive on just a couple hours of sleep a night, undoubtedly, being so committed to his study of the law. And there's a fourth thing as well. Paul, in the Jewish circles, walked among the Jewish elite. We don't have time to get into it, but there's different references that Paul makes that he had special authority from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest organ of authority among Jewish people. 
And we read in in the New Testament in different accounts that Paul uh, received special permissions and letters and authorizations from this high court of Judaism. So Paul was known among those 70 elite Jewish leaders of the entire nation. The highest form of leadership was those 70 men plus the high priest. And Paul was known personally by them by virtue of the fact that he got letters from them as he persecuted the church. That's who Paul was. And this leads us now to the second main point, the persecution, or the the third point here, Paul's persecution. Paul's persecution. So we looked at his background, his his Greco-Roman background. We looked at his Jewish upbringing. Number three, his persecution. We read that in Paul's early life, he hated Jesus. And he hated Jesus' followers just as much. In fact, when Paul steps onto the scene in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, the first appearance of the name Saul, his Hebrew name, occurs in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And Luke brings him in at that point to let us know that with the stoning of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, Saul was the presiding judge. He was the one who stood there, and Luke makes a special comment that, they, that, that those who were engaged in the actual punishment of the throwing of the stones, that they set their cloaks at Paul's feet to show that Paul was the one who was administering that oversight over those proceedings. That's who Saul was. He hated The church, Acts 7 verse 58 says that when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. In Paul's own words in Acts chapter 22 verses 4 to 5, Paul said this, I persecuted this way to the death binding and putting both men and women in prisons and also the high priest and all the council, that's the Sanhedrin, all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who are there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. You see, Paul's zeal led him not just to pursue the, the, the believers, the church there in Jerusalem, but as they fled because he was now the face of persecution for the church, they fled Jerusalem because of Paul. He now pursued them, and, the, and he even admits that he pursued not just men, but women as well. That's significant. And that he didn't just imprison them, but he was responsible for their deaths. According to Jewish law, if you could find another Jew who has blasphemed the temple and Moses and, and the Lord God himself, you could begin the proceedings for a death penalty. And the indication here is that Paul would, would do things to get them to blaspheme the sacred things and then give his vote for their deaths. That's who Saul was. But I like what James Stalker said. He said, But the good shepherd had heard the cries of the trembling flock and went forth to face the wolf on their behalf. That happened on the road to Damascus. Damascus was about 140 miles north of Jerusalem, northeast. It would be about seven days of walking. They would walk at least 20 miles a day in those days. So they'd get get there in about a week. And Paul himself describes it best about what happened when the good shepherd came to meet this wolf. Let me read from Acts chapter 26, verse 9 to 13. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with all the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. He continues, he says, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Ironically, Paul was blinded physically by the light. And we have to understand that there, he says, at midday, approaching Damascus, if you know anything about that part of the world, that's the Middle East, that's hot. There's no clouds at midday, ever, really. Midday, and the light was brighter than the brightest time of the day for the sun, as it appears. The one whose, whose glory was brighter than the sun was none other than the resurrected Jesus himself who met Paul on that road. And, and Paul saw Jesus, the resurrected Lord, with his own eyes. And that vision of Jesus' glory blinded him, at least temporarily. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. But Paul, more than just a physical sight, Paul saw Jesus spiritually. And I think he alludes to this well when he writes of the problem of the Corinth of the problem of the Jews when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He describes the Jewish problem in these words in verses 14 to 18 and and this helps us understand what happened to Paul on the Damascus road. He said this, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. As Paul is blinded physically, he sees spiritually for the first time. He beheld the glory of Jesus Christ and it changed his life. One man said of this conversion, he described it this way, Paul was not converted by any teaching which he received from men. He was not converted as Christians are usually converted by the preaching of the truth or by that revelation of Christ which is contained in the lives of his followers or on the pages of Scripture. Jesus himself, in the case of Paul, did in visible presence what he ordinarily does by the means which he has appointed. Upon this immediateness of his conversion, Paul now is willing to stake his whole life. Upon this appearance, Paul bases all of his authority. Another writer said this, no single event apart from the Christ event itself, that's the death and resurrection 
of Christ itself. No other event has proved so determinant for the course of Christian history as the conversion and commissioning of the Apostle Paul. For anyone who accepts Paul's own explanation of his Damascus Road experience, it would be difficult to disagree with the observation that the conversion of the apostle, uh, the, the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, when properly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be divinely true. You see, when you look at Paul and all of the things that he possessed, when you look at all of his attainments, all of his religious attainments, and then you see him later on in Philippians saying, I count all of these things as rubbish in comparison to the glory of knowing this person, Jesus Christ. When you see that kind of a testimony, you see, yes, this is what Christ does. This is true. This is what had happened, Paul. And as we're going to talk about next week, this conversion now becomes the bedrock for all that Paul does. Paul clearly sees his life divided into two parts, that which is marked by vanity and rubbish and that which is marked by knowing Christ. And in the middle, that which separates one side from the other, that continental divide is that place, that historical moment in Paul's life where he met Jesus Christ and beheld his glory. And so ultimately... Even though our focus is on the men around Paul, we first and foremost have to come to terms with the man above Paul, the man Jesus Christ. And I want you, as we close, just to turn to Philippians chapter 3 and summarize here with Paul's words the transition that took place as Paul met the one above him and addressed him as Lord. Philippians chapter 3, we'll close with these words. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order, in order that I might gain Christ be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. As we start this series Paul would not want us to focus on Paul. As we start this series, there's a very important truth that each one of us needs to consider for ourselves. Have we had a moment in our lives that serves as a continental divide? A moment when we were transitioned from the camp of Satan to the kingdom of God. Is that where you are today, in that domain of God, along with Paul, under Christ, whom he called Lord? Are you there? If you're not there, anything else that we talk about with respect to the 
characteristics of these other men will have no value. You can reform yourselves and take on qualities and characteristics that will be beneficial to others, but in the end, they will be, as Paul called them, they will be rubbish. And when you stand before that glorious Lord, you will not stand long. You will be forced to bend the knee. And by that time, it will be too late. Today, as it is still called day, you're invited to bend the knee. Like Paul, confess this person, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. Are you there? For the Apostle Paul, this is foundational. And as we'll see next week, for the Apostle Paul, if God could save a sinner like him, Paul felt that no one else needed to despair. A murderer, persecutor, blasphemer. So if you use the excuse that God can't save you, you, you don't know Paul's testimony. And I invite you to study that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we embark on this study, we pray that you would impact us with the lives of these men. You are a God who uses means. And you have used the Apostle Paul and men around him in amazing ways, not because they themselves brought virtue to you, not because they were great men who were irresistible to your plans. No, you used men like Paul and others to demonstrate your surpassing power. But as we study the lives of these means, the lives of these men, may we not lose track of the one whom each of them met and knew, the one for whom they would count all things as loss, and that's your Son, Jesus Christ. May each of us grow in our love for his glory, our readiness to do anything that he commands of us, and our courage to make him known just as the Apostle Paul did. We pray all these things in his name, the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen.